Thank you both. Uh, a couple of announcements. The first is to say that this talk is being recorded and will be on the website. Uh, one of the, um, the small groups uh, is looking at it tomorrow night. And so the, the PowerPoint will be there, the, uh, the talk, and the handouts. And if we can get it to the clip, because I think we need the clip, don't you? I think if we paid that six weeks, do you think it would make a difference? Oh. Um, the second is to say that um, we're looking at uh, a portrait of Jesus. And there's just so much in each of these uh, writings. So we're going to take just one particular perspective that we, that we can find. And because it's Lent, and this is the time when we take stock of our own discipleship, we're going to look at the implications for our own personal discipleship. So we're looking at portraits of Jesus, and tonight we start with Hebrews. And I think it's great because it overlaps with the verses that we've got as our verse of the year. I ought to ask the last question. Has everybody got the handout? Two pieces of paper. You raise your hand if you nod. Right. Oh dear. Are there some left? No small ones left. Oh, right. Shall I show you? Who, who needs a small one? I, I've got a spare. Yes, you... Yeah. Let me ask, who's, who'd like a free small one? That's right. Okay. Are you sure? You're right. Right, thank you. So, what is a portrait? How would you, in a word, describe a portrait? Any, any quick suggestions? Right? Description, yes. Picture, interpretation, yes. I, <laughs> a likeness, thank you. Okay, well, can I say, I, this is the one, the description I thought was, the, I think I think quite touched me really. The portrait is the remembrance of a friend. How about that? Now, not all portraits are painted by friends, of course, um, but at their best they could be. And that actually draws out two things. The first is that a portrait is the combination of the subject to be painted and the artist who's doing the painting. So the artist looks at the subject and gives to us a, a representation of them. But as, you, as, you, as you're aware, unlike a photographer, although some photographers can do it as well, the artist is looking at the person and he will see something or she will see something in the inner life of that person. And then the craft is to take that and somehow represent it in what they paint. So a portrait is never meant to be just a literal picture of them. It's meant to be, I think somebody said the word interpretation, it's a likeness. It's, it's, it's like, but not just a photograph. There's something special that's been emphasized that the artist has picked up and said, I'd like to show you this person in this light. So, um, I think there it is. The artist plays with the tension between the visual, what the person actually looks like, and the significant, which is less tangible, harder to express, and actually, usually, it's more important. 
what a person is really like. Well, that's that certainly is the, Here's a portrait. I just, I'd like you to just look at that for a moment. And I'd like to ask you, what is the artist saying through this portrait? Okay, any thoughts? Yep. So what does that suggest? Yeah. What did he say about the artist? I think he was. He was Nigerian. <laughs> he was a Nigerian Christian. So what is he saying as a Nigerian Christian? Is he saying that Jesus looked like that? Sorry? Yet nearly, that's how he sees Jesus for him, yes. Yes. Jesus relates to him. He, he's, he's his brother, he's his companion, his friends, and all of that. And for him, that's the way he sees people. So he said, as an Nigerian Christian, that's my Lord. He's not saying he literally looked like that. He's saying that is what he is to me, for me. And that's what a portrait does. It says something significant. Anything else that strikes you? Yes. Either. Yes. 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 I think there is, I, I don't know this, but certainly within some of the Catholic churches, they have what they call the Order of the Sacred Heart. And that's the heart which is on fire with love for God and for others. Yeah. Any else strikes you? Yes. The, the crown of thorns, and yet the halo behind. So he, it's the risen Lord. No. So in that portrait, you see, we've got more out of it than just, oh, Jesus might look like that. Yeah. Well, now, if we take that, that's the, uh, the physical portrait, and we extend it, you can have literal verbal portraits and words. That's what the New Testament writings do. They combine the insight of the writer and his team with what they found out about Jesus. And they then take what they find out about Jesus and weave it into a literary portrait rather than a, a physical one. And these are the tools that the literary portrait painter uses. The shape of the text. Interaction between characters. Who stands out? Who's retired? Is in the background. Um, the selection of language. Wordplay. The adoption of a point of view. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the point of view is, come with me and we will journey with the disciples and gradually learn who Jesus is. So by the end of reading this gospel, the penny will have dropped. In John, he says the point of view is, let me tell you straight off, this is who Jesus is. Now, see how it unfolds. See the point of view of the writer. The invitation of the reader to be a detective. I think that's great. Scripture is just so much there. So I think if you have a detective streak in you, great stuff. Fan it, or whatever you do with streaks. Oil it. Exercise it. And then finally, there's the scriptural trinity of you've got the text, the reader, and the Holy Spirit. 
the amazing thing is that a, a text which on the surface is just another, a list of words can come alive and the Holy Spirit can make it real so that we feel, not that we've just done a bit of literary criticism, but that, that God has spoken to us through that word. Well, tonight we're looking at Jesus the Trailblazer, a portrait of Jesus in the letter to Hebrews. So if we just look at the, the shape, I suggest that you can divide Hebrews, broadly speaking, into three parts. And it's there, you don't need to write in that, it's on your handout. Um, the parts run roughly like this. The first ten chapters are about Jesus. How he blazed away to heaven. Jewish faith foreshadowed him. He's better than the best of Jewish faith. Then the next ten and two, let us run the race, run in faith, and do not miss out. And finally, as in most of the um, New Testament documents, the list of um, hints for people of how to live for Jesus sometimes uh, with particular people may. So that's broadly speaking. So Hebrews, actually, Hebrews in terms of the New Testament documents says a lot about Jesus, which you won't find in some of the other portraits in, in Paul or in John. And that first part, if we look at a bit more closely, that first section, if we look there, that is an amazing beginning to the gospel. If you like, just turn to it again. When I say the gospel, I mean the good news, not the gospel song. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to my son. Now, up to that point, that's common parlance. But now look at the next bit. Whom he appointed heir of all things, yes, through whom he made the universe. It is true that as the Christians reflected on who Jesus was and is, they thought he is the one who was instrumental in creating the universe. Remember in Genesis, it says, the word God spake and the word called into existence the word. Well, the word is Jesus, the Logos. And so Jesus is the one who called into existence the creation we know. But look at this. This is said nowhere else. Verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. How clear is that? That's very... In those who study it, they call it Christology. That's a very high Christology. Jesus is now seen as much more than a rabbi who's been raised from the dead. He's now seen as, as God himself. How does that work out? Well, soon, it's, 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 it's verse 5, it's explained. You are my son. They have become your father. So in that first section, we get this picture of Jesus. Then we get another picture. The first one, prophets compared to Jesus. The second one is now the angels. So the next bit is to try and locate the angels in, in the pantheon of uh, levels of existence. This, uh, and then, for, to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? He never did. They are not. They are not his sons, but Jesus is. So he's got a name which is higher than the angels. And then there's another stream, which we'll look at in more detail in a bit. Having said that, we turn on chapter 2, verse 9. We see Jesus made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. 
Then verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, fitting the God with whom and with whom everything made pioneer their salvation perfectly what is son. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters, verse 11. Verse 14, since the children of flesh and blood we shared in their humanity. Jesus is not fully divine alone. He's fully human. We'll look at that in a moment. And then there's a long section here um, which contrasts the, the Judaism was the way the Jews worshipped in those days, the temple sacrifices, what happened, what the high priest did, who went into the holy holies, uh, all of that. And it contrasts what Jesus brings to what the, the rituals and the, the liturgy of the Jews achieved. So at the end of that, we've seen how Jesus is new and has brought something that's really, really new. So what's the response to this new person? Well, it is to live by faith. And so we get this lovely portrait gallery of heroes of faith. Um, 10 on to 1140. Mike was talking about it just a moment ago. And these people who live by faith, if you, well, we'll look at it in more detail in a moment, but I don't want to jump ahead. They're just um, there to encourage us. And then it's our turn, the reader. Let us also run the race, looking to Jesus. And then, so where are we running to? Where are we going? There's this wonderful picture of Mount Zion, which we'll look at briefly in a moment. And then, I say, there's the, uh, the odds and ends in the most respectful way, uh, as, as these you know, pieces finish. So we've got this picture, and you've got it, set it out there in the, the handout. So it's there for further thought and reflection. My question now is this. In the light of what's there, who do you think, what kind of people was Hebrews written for? Yep, there are new found faith, there are new Christians, yep. For who, yes, for whom script the Jewish ways that were really important, so they may have been Jews who've become Christians, because uh, th there's a lot on Jesus and the, and the Jewish religion. Yeah? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, now, if you run through Hebrews, you'll find there's another stream of thought as well. And it's this. There are loads of warnings. Hebrews says, be careful. Do not drift away. Do not give up. Do not harden your heart. Do not risk it. Do not turn back. Again and again and again and again. That tells us something else about those who were receiving uh, the letter. Received the letter. So it seems it most likely that these are Jewish Christians with some others who've joined in them. But they they've found it hard, and they're beginning to think: Is it worth it? And some of them are saying, well, we could just go back to being Jewish believers. And others are saying, I didn't think we bargained for this. It's just, we just want to give up, sit down, stand back. And so the letter to Hebrews, as well as talking about these wonderful things, is also saying, please do not give up. 
And that's why when I try to do a Twitter on the, on the front of here, you'll see what, what I think is the message of Hebrews. It, for, for the, for, if, you have a, if you do Twitter, it's 140 expanded. It's roughly 140 characters. And there they are. Heaven is your home. Jesus pioneered the way there. Join the many who run this journey with faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus and then big capital. Don't give up. <laughs> Just don't. And actually, when you, re- when you read through the whole of Hebrews, you'll find every now and again, there, it's almost as if the writers are consciously looking over their shoulders to the, at the reader who's reading over their shoulder. And they say, isn't this lovely Jesus? And they turn around and say, so that means don't give up, got it? Oh, yes. And, they, and so it goes on. It was hard to be a Christian in those first years after Jesus died. Christians were martyred. It's nothing like what we did. It's much. It's close to some of the countries we hear of, where Christians are a minority and persecuted. It was like that in those days. And to start out as a Christian was great, but it was not at all such a surprise that people felt maybe we need to just ease back. Don't be too too committed, too public. And so the warnings came. Well. Let's now look at those in, in turn. If we start then with uh, the first of those, which is Jesus is God's son. Jesus and the prophets. If you just turn to Jesus, uh, sorry, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. Then verse 3, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The letter to the Hebrews is anonymous. Like many of those writings from those days, who wrote it was less important, but these scriptures had been identified by the, by the church, uh, the church leaders of the day, and considered to be sufficiently reliable so they could be put into the list of scriptures which we have today. It's called a canon. The canon of the New Testament is the list of those books that were written and have been approved by uh, the councils, the early councils of the church. And they look for two things. They look, first of all, that the scriptures there gave a good representation of what happened in the past in Jesus' day. They looked back. But they also wanted that it was, uh, when people read it, that they came alive and God spoke to them. It was an effectual word. So they identified those of the many writings that were around the place and said, here are some. And Hebrews is one, and it's just anonymous. Uh, it's really interesting. I don't know whether it, uh, you, you, how much you've thought about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You probably know they share a lot of material, Yes. Yeah, and you may even have heard the phrase that they're synoptic gospels, which means you're supposed to synoptic from the Greek. You're supposed to look at all three with one eye. But anyway, the idea is that it's it's there's large parts there which are which are over, which overlap. They've got the same. And the interesting thing about it is this: that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them had an editorial team, and when they took this material, they got the material which they had in common, and they found some other material that they went out doing research and whatnot. Uh, Mark sent up his team and interviewed Peter. So some of the stuff that comes in Mark's gospel comes with Peter's background. And that's why it has that kind of ring of authenticity uh, and the abruptness as well. If you, but we'll, we'll look at Mark in a bit. 
So they had material in common and material they found themselves, and they then created a portrait. They wove it into, into the portrait that they presented. Now, what is interesting, in order to present that portrait, to prepare that portrait, they used the common material in different ways. So the sayings of Jesus are dotted about in different places. Because as portrait painters, they would try to make different points. So what you've got are three portraits using quite a bit of common material, but rearranged to make the point they wish to make. And at that stage, you say, fine, okay. And some of you may think, so which one is reliable? Well, this is the interesting thing. When the councils met, they looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They could see that they could trace them back to some apostle. And they could see that in the church, God was using his scriptures to speak to the, to the Christians of the day. And so they said, all three of these we're going to put into the canon. We've got them today. What they didn't say was, well now, which one is truer than the other? And therefore, we'll choose that and chop the other. Nor did they do what, um, if there had been Church of England people around in those days, they'd have done. Let's just put it all together and get a nice common sort of theme. They didn't consolidate or combine. They said, each of these has something to say to us. They've been inspired, God breathed, and so they stand as they do. So, when you look at Scripture and the ports of Scripture, variety is a value-added thing. There are some people who have been seduced by the 19th to 20th century uh, rush to try and find the historical background behind the texts. And uh, it's much more complex than this should be thought. These Scriptures are given to us so we may meet Jesus and each of us throws a different spotlight. When I was preparing these slides, I was looking for um, a picture, I couldn't find one on the internet, but I'll explain why. Uh, what I wanted was a picture of a subject and different people at different e with different easels all the way around, painting the subject from a different angle, same subject, and putting, is it where what they saw and could draw out? You get the picture in my yeah. Well, it, the only ones I could find were naked ladies, really, as subjects. And there were lots of easels around us. <laughs> Now, uh, so I, I, I thought I'd do in words instead. Uh, so Hebrews then is one of these portraits. So let's so pursuing. So there's God. What is this? This wonderful thing. The prophets could never match that. What what Hebrews is saying is that Jewish religion was the best they had at that point. And Jesus was better than the best. That's what was new and different. That's why people followed him. And that's why the Jews, for many Jews, they couldn't cope with the quantum leap expected of them. They rather continue in what they're familiar with. Jesus, the exact representation of the being, sat down. Well, now here, thinking now about our discipleship, is a thought. I offer you this. I suggest that we all construct in our imagination a picture of what we think God is like. What sort of things feed into that picture? Experiences, yep. And experiences can be good. I prayed and God blessed. 
and sad. I prayed and it didn't happen. Yeah, what else? Yes, so we would, yes, we would, it would be something that we're familiar with or comfortable with, perhaps. Yep. That's right. Pictures you see. You know, I'm, I didn't see Jesus Christ superstar until I'd read through all four Gospels. And I was confident that I wasn't going to be carried away by, I think, a really interesting and persuasive bit of you know, light music. But we get pictures of Jesus all over the place. And some of them we pick up unwittingly. We don't even know we've done it. Um, my first experience was God's there. Do you remember that? Remember that first how it begins? Uh, later. We have in our imagination a picture of what God is like. And what Hebrews is saying is whatever you've got in your imagination is not as reliable as what we see in Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you've studied scripture, how many years you've spent doing a doctorate. I spent seven. And one of those years, actually having read it, I thought, we'll put that one side. A whole year devoted to something and that's been part. That is not good enough. It's not clear enough. We're not even prophets. So our understanding is important for this reason, that people live their life of discipleship in the light of the understanding in our minds. We, don't, we never see Jesus clearly and unadulterated. We won't until we get to heaven. We, have, we only see dark, dimly or darkly, depending how you translate it. We have a picture of Jesus as God in our mind, and we live in the light of that picture. And if that picture, if you've grown up in a place where God is very severe, then that's what you'll think God is like. And you will live your life in the, in the light of a severe God. If you think God is not interested, or he has high standards, or he cannot forgive, or whatever, you live in the light of that. And people live disappointed with God. It's not really God that they've been disappointed with. It's they're disappointed with the, the image of God in their mind, which has been shaped by some and so what we've got here is an amazing gift. If you want to know what God is really like, look at Jesus. He is the exact representation. There is none clearer. If you're a great Old Testament scholar, it doesn't matter. All that God gave through the Old Testament is still nothing like what Jesus brings. Jesus. And I think that is a great release. If you've got that, then Jesus will set you free. For example, I think Jesus forgives us. In a moment, we'll look at his humanity. He is more gentle and kind and understanding than you are about yourself. That's my experience. Maybe some of you are a bit so lazy and slack. And actually, Jesus needs to give you a kick up the nurse while well, encourage you a bit. But our you see what I'm saying? We need, and I think this is a, a, a check really, we need to let Jesus of the gospel reshape our picture of what God is like. For many people in the West, they don't really believe that God intervenes. We live in a culture which says God is a private affair 
which for some people is rather lovely, it's your hobby, get on with it. But God doesn't intervene in the marketplace. He's not in the public square. And actually, a lot of the churches, the reason why healings are few and far between in, in churches in the West is because we are saturated with a sceptical culture which came out of enlightenment and, and reason, the birth of reason. And if you have been, if you've grown up in that kind of thing, then you'll stick the same. It's very interesting. There are, have you heard this? I'm sorry, I'm digressing very quickly. But you know this idea that uh, miracles, signs and wonders were only for the days of the apostles. And now we've got scripture, we don't need signs and wonders. Because that was for then, and now we've got scriptures to take us through to now. You've heard that sort of idea? Well, where is scripture? Does it say signs and wonders will stop? It does. When we see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13. Until we see Jesus face to face, that is part of the life and life of the church. And it's extraordinary, because what we've done, we've been seduced by the, the kind of skepticism of the scientific way of thinking, and we bought into that without knowing, and then we have to construct a way of explaining why we don't go around expecting God to make real differences today. Now, it's lovely that when God does do that, and it's great that in churches there are occasions when you have an open mic session, and people just say, we pray that the Lord has done something. It doesn't mean we get what we want, but it does mean that if we've opened ourselves to him, he might do something that he wants, and we can then tell the story. So, there we are. Just feast your, your imagination on the Jesus of the New Testament. I was thinking as I was preparing and praying, when Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, let them slap you on the other one. There's something there. And it's much better than tit for tat. I'll get you. I remember what you did to me 27 years ago. I've not forgotten. Okay. The second, I do. Jesus and humanity. Jesus is not ashamed to make people holy, and he calls us brothers and sisters. He's fully human in every way. He suffered when he was tempted. So he's able to help us that we are being tempted. I remember somebody saying to me, David, you say look at Jesus, but actually it was all right for him because he was God. It was kind of easy for him. But the New Testament doesn't say that. Hebrews says that Jesus learned what it was to be human, and in growing as a real person, he actually understands completely what we go through. What we find is this. For some people, their thinking is that Jesus is God and he put on an overcoat called humanity. But really, he's still God inside. Yeah? And so it was easier for him. Jesus did more than that. As Paul says in his called Kenosis, he emptied himself of every claim to be divine and said, I will, I will choose to live only as a human, open to the power of the Holy Spirit. That was how he lived and grew. Jesus understands. So when you come to him and you say, Lord, I've let you down again, his first words are something like, I know, I understand, I've been there. That's the Jesus who we commend. Somebody who 
welcomes, knows what is life from within. Is your, does your Jesus, is he like that? Because same question. Let's approach God's throne with grace and confidence. Well, the third theme is this long section of Jesus and Jewish faith. And I, I've already touched on it, really. It's very interesting to go in detail, but we won't be doing that tonight. But I will just point out a couple of things as we go through. Moses was faithful, but Jesus was, had greater honor than Moses. Because Moses led the people out of Egypt, heading for the promised land. Jesus leads us to the promised land. And so the picture is that Jesus can do much more than Moses could. Jesus was a priest like Melchizedek. The Levitical priesthood is set aside because it was weak and useless. A better hope is introduced. The Jews had this tribe that was given the responsibility of providing the priests for their um, worship in the temple. But the, and they, the, the, they are the Levitical priests. And that was their job. And out of their number came the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Jesus comes along as a priest, a high priest, but he's nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. He comes from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of David. And he is foreshadowed by this, this person called Melchizedek who appears out of nowhere. And the interesting thing, if you remember, when Melchizedek appeared, um, he was given honor and tithes. He was seen as God's representative, a priest of God, who was separate from the Levitical priests. And so Jesus is like that. He comes out of nowhere. Nobody knows where Melchizedek came from. So they don't know how old he was. So he could have been alive forever. And therefore they say, and this is kind of Jewish playing around with ideas, it could be that he's quite similar to Jesus. He was a priest forever like Melchizedek. We don't know how old he was. Well, didn't explore that. That was a, that was a poetic way of reading. The, the third of those... There were many priests, there had to be many priests, because they died. So they were a priest for a while, then somebody else replaced them, another, another, another. It's a whole host of them. But Jesus, because he lives forever, is the one priest. And what he offers to sacrifice is the one that lasts. And here, in the middle of this section, in chapter 8, we get this quotation from Jeremiah 30, 31. It's the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the whole uh, letter to Hebrews. Therefore, it must be important. And if you look at it, if you just turn to it, chapter 8, starting at verse 8. Jeremiah was speaking to the children of Israel, who, after having been led out of Egypt, had turned away from God, and God, in his love, said, I will not write them off. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you, Israel. It will not be like, verse 9, the old one. Verse 10, this is what it will be like. I will establish with the people of Israel, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors. 
or say one to another, know the Lord. We, look, we don't need priests with this new covenant. We don't need prophets. We don't need kings. We don't need lords. Because everybody has access to the Lord. This is the new covenant. Everybody, verse 11, will know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I'll forgive their wickedness. Remember since then. This vision of the new covenant is what Jesus actually introduced. And finally, Jesus, the high priest, offers his blood as a sacrifice which actually cleanses from all. There's something very interesting going on in this. What the writer to the, to the letter of Hebrews is saying is that all the Old Testament liturgies, uh, what goes on in the temple, the Holy Holies, are meant to be little patterns which show what eventually will come to pass. They are not the things that actually make it work. So, for example, in the Old Testament, um, once a year, you, you would pray on a goat and you, you, you transfer your sins to this goat and the goat was, was turned out into the desert. And the, the goat was called the scapegoat. Yeah? That was a symbol of what God does. The goat and the sins that you've, you've transferred in your imagination to that goat, that doesn't cleanse, that goat can't cleanse you. But God cleanses sin, and he's using the, the scapegoat as a symbol, as a sign, to help us know that it is God who does it. And it's the same today in services. You come to communion, and you'll get bread and wine in a moment, um, and you'll receive it with faith. The bread and the wine will be the means, the sign to you, that God, as you take that bread and wine, God is ministering to you. It's not the bread and the wine that do it. It's God who does it. It's God who makes that those ordinary elements into something which is a spiritual moment. And the trap that the Jews fell into, and the trap that some of us are liable to fall into, is that we take our eyes off God and we look at the service. And we say, um, they said, well, we've, we've, we've got... Um, our services are running all right, therefore we're all right. And God is saying, no, but they're meant to point to me. Some, I, when we go to communion, some people say, well, I've got to make my communion. And the reason is not because they um, are open to God in a fresh way, it's because they've begun to rely on the regularity of their communion as the basis of their relationship to Jesus. It's meant to be a pointer, a sign. The Jews didn't understand that. They gradually relied more and more on their liturgies, and they missed what the liturgies were pointing to. It was the God who loved them. And then finally, the last section. Oh, sorry, two more sections. This one, this is the bit we all know. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us then, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders sin that's so easily entangled. Really encouraging. I'd like you to do a bit of detective work there. Surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? Yes. That whole pantheon of heroes of faith. In chapter 10. Do you remember? And then they moved and since we're surrounded by people like that, let us also run the race. Therefore, the picture, I, I, it took me a long time to understand this, because I, I, I've got it muddled in my head. I originally thought 
there was this single, there was me running a race, and there were banks of people all around me watching and clapping and cheering from the sidelines, you know, like in um, a big uh, amphitheater, as, as the marathon was when it finished in King Greece. But actually, that's, those, those are observers. Those are not witnesses. Witnesses are people who, in their lives, have made a statement about they trust God and they, they, are, they are living by faith. And we are encouraged to live by faith too. So the picture of Hebrews is not the lonely, long-distance runner looking to Jesus in the distance, hoping he can keep going. It's a whole crowd, a host of people, all of us running, looking to Jesus and encouraging each other on the way. And I think that's why I chose that clip at the beginning. Because there were just stacks of people of all kinds of shapes, sizes, and speeds. And that's what it's like. We are all in this together. And just like that um, clip was a fun run, nobody minds what speed you're moving at. Who cares? We're doing it together. We're encouraging each other together. We're looking to Jesus and say, listen, if, if all these people in chapter 10 can live, can by faith, as it says there at the end of chapter 10, they never received what God had promised. They kept believing it was in the future. Then it comes. So we are now part of that great phalanx. We're going to finish with a hymn written by a bishop. I'm not sure that's a good about it, but it is. Case. It's called For All the Saints. I'm sure you know it. He, he wrote it, and the last verse talks about the host of people streaming into heaven. And the picture is just unnumbered people sort of making their way to heaven. And that's what Hebrews is saying. Hebrews warns, and he uses character and stick, the letter does. The, the carrot is this vision of heaven and Jesus ahead of us. And the stick is, listen lads, if you, if you mess this up, you're going to lose out, so don't give up. It's, it's a mixture. Fix your eyes upon him. Throw off everything which hinders and the sin that entangles. And I'd just like to leave one thought there. Have you noticed there are two things that hold the runner back? Not one, two. The first, things that hinder. The second, sin. Now, I think most of us understand that sin can get in the way and, and hinder our spiritual walk. Yep. It's self-evident. But what does that first bit mean? There are things which are not sin, but still can get in the way, can hinder us. Are the things we're doing in our lives, which in and of themselves, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. They're, they're fine. But actually, they're holding us back. They're entangling us. They're getting wrapped around our feet. We can't run. I think uh, Lent is a good time to take stock, not simply of the things we want to give up and stop doing, but the things we're doing that maybe are completely fine in their own mind. Actually, they're getting in the way of running the race. It may be your hobbies. It may be that promise to take somebody on a holiday. Or it, might, it might be commitments you've made in good faith, but actually they're in the way. And only as we pray and listen to the Holy Spirit will we, will we have those made clear. And I think that's when, it seems to me, we have to say, we're, we're prepared to give it up, Lord, so that we can focus on you. And now some of you may know that I, for a time I was in the Air Force, and, and I trained as a pilot. And uh, I have to say, uh, I 
we started school. We, I, I went to one of these schools where they had a cadet force. You know, when there was all these lads run around carrying a, a 303 rifle, thinking, how does it really work? And the black, I mean, it jammed, it ended the matter. Um, and so we, then there's an air section. And so I won a flying scholarship. So I went to Biggin Hill and was selected. And that meant that I was then trained to be a pilot at the Royal Air Force expense whilst I was in the sixth form. It was amazing. It probably explains some of the grades I got. So by the time I went to university, I had a private pilot's license as well as a car license. And I had um, uh, some the local news, the ITN, the Central News, thought this was really interesting. and did a film, and they came and filmed me flying around in a plane. It was great, really. Um, and when they showed it, on the, on the night they showed it, I was actually doing a cross-country, which is part of your training, and I was lost over the Midlands, and it was getting dark. So I, although it looked grand on the telly, it was nothing like it, really. So when you start patting the plane and say, we're in this together, you think this is serious. So I went up to university and I became a Christian in my first term. And then and I applied to join the RAFER, the squadron there that flew. And I'd become a Christian literally about four weeks before the interview. And they flew at weekends. And I said, Lord, you know I love flying more than anything, more than engineering, which I was reading. And I just started as a Christian. There's nothing wrong with flying. It's very useful. And it's great to move in three dimensions. It doesn't make you sick unless somebody does it the wrong way. It's his glory. It's a new freedom. But I won't get that. The question was, what what would I have to do if they said, okay, David, we'll give you a place. That means you've got to be available Saturdays and Sundays and we'll tell you when to fly. And I said, Lord, I can't do that. So I went to them in the interview and I said, I'm, I'm really keen on flying. I've done this, 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 and I'd love to do it. But I said, I'm a Christian, and I think, and I have to say, I'm not available on Sunday mornings because I'm in church worshiping the Lord. And, and if, 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 that, if that's a problem, then I'm, I, I'll accept it, and the flying is over. And I went off, and they had this interview. And then they got in touch and said, you're in. We accept that. We won't ask you to fly on a Sunday morning. And I think it's that, what I'd done, I'd given it away, and then the Lord gave it back. But I'd given it away because it, it, it could have entangled me. Maybe you train on Sunday morning, or it might be anything. What is it that's entangling, but it's not a sin? And then finally, 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 when the preacher says finally three times, you think, probably getting near the end. Just turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This just wonderful thing. Verse 18 and following. Now, it says, you have not come, this vision of the future, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched, that burns with fire, darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to a voice begging, speaking words. The picture there is the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, where God appeared and the Ten Commandments, and, and everybody was frightened. Remember the children of Israel in the, in the, in the plague? Moses came down and said, come up. And they said, no, thank you. You go up and we'll listen to what you bring down. It was awesome and terrifying. But this is not what you're talking about. You've not come to this kind of man. Verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to a place where thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly 
to the church of the first names are written you have come to God judge of all to the spiritual the righteous made perfect to Jesus the mediator of that new covenant we were talking about to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel remember Cain and Abel and they it was just murder and all this is a completely different affair this was one of the Jewish visions of heaven and this writer is saying, this is really where Jesus is. Look, where is Jesus now? He's sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. That's where we're running. That race, which we talked about in Hebrews 12 at the beginning, leads to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is still the future. We have a taste of it already by knowing the Lord and his love. And that's what we're running for. So I've got two reflections. Let me show you. Um, Two reflections on that for today. The first is this. How much does heaven inform your thinking? Many Christians I know are caught up with the business of being a disciple in difficult times and they know eventually go to heaven and thank goodness for that. But their thinking is orientated by their experience here. Why not invert it like the letter to the Hebrews says? Why not think of heaven and then say in the light of heaven, uh, well, there's this to go through. Do you see the difference? Let our center of gravity be where the Lord is. Let us dwell there. Let us think about it. Let us reflect upon it. Let us meditate upon it. What's it like to be with Jesus, to be close to him, to be able to see clearly I think one of the great things about heaven for me is there'll be no more dying than no death. I, I really resent the fact that you get to know somebody and they go and die on you. I mean, it's just inconsiderate. Because that we only have a short life and we make relationships and then we part. Either we move or they die. So it won't be like that in heaven. Relationships will blossom and flourish and will go on. I think that's great. No more parting. No more sorrow. No more tears. All of that sort of stuff. So why not let heaven be the center of gravity of us? Not here. Hebrews, it says, 13, right at the end, remember this 13, um, chapter 13, verse 14, here we do not have an enduring city. We are looking for the city that is to come. I remember Two old, I've told this story before, but I think it's just, I think it's just great. Two old men, old Christian saints, really doddry, much older than, well, certainly probably as old as Ivor, or I don't know, somebody really ancient. And they were going like, and anyway, and, and they were, and one of them thought, oh, right, my time has come. He was, you know, bits had fallen off, he couldn't get up, he was lying there, getting fading away. And he realized he was about to die. So he got to this, somebody, and he dictated this postcard to his friend, John, or whatever his name was. He said, Dear John, I've raced you to heaven. I'm off. See you there. And he died not long after. What a way to die. Death is a door into glory. It's something to be embraced, welcomed. The sadness in parting that we've just touched on. But actually, there's a much greater life ahead, is there not? Well, yes, okay, fine. We agree. <laughs> but how do we allow that to be central in our future, to make a difference. And that's what the letter he wants to do. He wants to say, 
He wants to say, we're, we're involved in a much bigger affair than just our life and what goes on in Aldridge. We are part of God's renewal of creation and he is waiting to welcome us. That lovely pattern did in John about having personal rooms. Have you booked your room? Well, that was the first reflection. And the second is that we're going to sing now, as, a, as we draw to a close on this talk, um, the, the song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, 10,000 Reasons. I don't know whether um, you probably know, but I don't know you know, there's a book written about it, uh, written by Matt Redburn, about the way this song has been a blessing to people. And you'll know that in this worship song, it does exactly that. It looks to heaven and lets heaven nourish us now. And in the in that in the the number of people who are interviewed and give testimony to how that song has been a blessing to them, there were two people who were accused of drug running and then sentenced to death. You may remember the story. And they were innocent, but they'd been framed. And this pastor went to meet them, and they had become Christians in prison. And she said, the pastor who wrote this up, she said, how is it for you? They said, we are freer now than we have ever been in our lives. Jesus was there, now their Lord is here. And we know that we're not going to get out of here. And so they spend the time talking and singing about their faith, just like Paul in Acts. Um, and then eventually the day came for their execution. And they were allowed to invite a pastor to go and be a witness. And this pastor goes uh, to witness. And, and I'll read you a little just a little bit. Um, soon a soldier tapped the pastor on the shoulder and said, Time is nearly up. Two men have been taken up, taken out and tied the trees. She could say her last few words to him. And she says, Is there anything you want to say? Yes, said one of these two men. I want to forgive these people who are tying me up. Anything else? I want to declare God's blessing on Indonesia, which is where this took place. Anything else? Yes. Lord Jesus, I trust you. Okay, the time has come. Let's start singing. Soldier captured on the arm. And then she said, Have you forgiven these people? Yes, I forgive them. He started singing. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship his holy name. And then the pastor joined in, and others too. She stepped back and said, keep singing. I'll see you on the other, on the other side. And he said, and I will see you on the other side. Thank you for being God's man. He said, pastor, you keep being God's woman. Together with Andrew and one of the other prisoners, they sang. And they sang, whatever may pass and whatever lies before, let me be singing. And they were singing this song when they were shot, executed. That's what heaven can do. It can give hope in the darkest of places. There's Jesus. And that's what the letter of the Hebrew wants to say. This Jesus is that kind of person. And he's waiting there for you to be. So, would you like to stand and we'll sing.